Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. This episode's guest is Kevin Kahn from Precision Powerlifting Systems. Kevin was back on the show way back on episode 26, which is linked up in the show notes. Precision Powerlifting Systems is based out of Boston, Massachusetts, where Kevin leads the raw powerlifting team through individualized Shaco-style programming leading up to local, regional, and national-level USA powerlifting meets. Kevin has worked as a nutritionist and strength coach for several facilities in the greater Boston area, including Harvard University and Total Performance Sports. Kevin holds a master's in kinesiology from A.T. Still University and a bachelor's degree in health and wellness from Kaplan University. Currently, Kevin competes in the 105 kg class in USA powerlifting as a raw open lifter and has been under the tutelage of former Team Russia powerlifting coach and coaching legend Boris Shako since 2015. On this episode, Kevin and I discussed what's new with Kevin, who have Kevin's biggest influences be over the past three years since we last spoke. Kevin shares with us an in-depth overview of Bor Shako's powerlifting system. Kevin talks about the importance of technique with the big three lifts within Shako's system. Kevin discusses how the Russians believe that a continual refinement of intra- and intramuscular coordination were key determinants to a lifter's ongoing development and success. Kevin tells us why Shaco rarely goes over 85% within most of his training cycles. Kevin outlines Shaco's exercise classification model. Kevin outlines how he prescribes training volumes over a meso and micro cycle for his lifters. Kevin and I discussed the respect for dynamic systems theory and skill acquisition within Shaco's system. Kevin outlines the setup for a microcycle within Shaco's model. Kevin shares with us the biggest things he has learned from utilizing Shaco's programming. Kevin shares with us his top resources and advice. And finally, if Kevin could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode, Kevin, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Kevin Khan, an absolute pleasure, sir to have you come back on to the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. It's been a, been a while now since we've chatted, it's been, and it's been even longer since you were on the podcast originally. But uh, Kev, just for the listeners who aren't too familiar with who you are, just fill us in on the background. All right, so I'm Kevin Can. I'm the Director of Strength and Conditioning and Head Coach at Total Performance Sports in Malden, Mass. 
It's a snazzy, um, snazzy the, title. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice, that's for sure. Um, it's basically Malden is just outside of the city of Boston, where our powerlifting strongman gym primarily. Uh, we have about 500 members, and I would I would say that about two thirds of them compete in some form of the strength sports. Uh, on top of that, I've been working with Boris Shiko since 2015, since that seminar we actually attended together, Robbie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've been working with him ever since, and now I apply the principles I've learned from him with a group of about 15 competitive powerlifters. Wow, and, 15. Uh, that's a fucking, that's nice bit to have. Yeah, and it's actually grown more over the last year than it did in the year before that. Uh, we actually just came back from USAPL, the Raw Nationals. I had four lifters there. They all did. They all did really well. Great stuff. So, Kev, like, I, I know, again, you, you were on previously a long time back, and I, I'm... I'm now, I haven't listened to that episode, so, but I'm assuming I, I asked you who were your influences at the time, um, because that's usually one of my one of my anchor questions at the beginning of all the podcasts. But seemingly it's been so long since you run the podcast, and it's been so long since we spoke, um, over two and a half years in person, and even longer again on the podcast. Just in terms of your influences, um, who would you say have been the biggest influence on you personally and professionally? And, and has there been anyone in particular, probably Shaco himself, uh, in terms of your professional side of things within the last two to four years? Yeah, you know, like the funny thing is, it's like being a strength coach, stuff kind of changes along the way. So mm-hmm. my my role has changed over over time. Like before I was, you know, just a part-time coach. I didn't have any competitive strength athletes or anything. So the people who I leaned towards for that advice, uh, they tended to be more people that would suit the population that I was dealing with. And since my role has changed and who I coach has changed a bit, um, I guess that stuff does change. But yeah, Boris Shiko has been probably the biggest influence on me since I basically, uh, I mean, I've been running his playbook for the last two years and then applying everything that I've learned from him with my lifters. And on top of that, Murph from Total Performance Sports, he's the owner. He basically taught me how to lift. Uh, way back in the day when I started there. So those two primarily have been uh, my biggest influences over the course of the last two and a half years. I hope you drank all that whiskey I bought in that time. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that stuff doesn't last longer than that. <laughs> so just for the listeners, uh, Boris Chico put a seminar on in Total Performance Sports back in 2015. At the time, I was uh, working at my Oil Training Commission for the summer. And fair play to Kevin. He contacted me and he's like, hey, I hear you're in town. Do you want to come to this? It's on me. He said, uh, but uh, he says, um, a really nice thing you could do is just get, bring Murph, the owner of Total Performance Sports, uh, some Irish whiskey. So I just bought my bottle and got to go to the seminar and, and sit in on a great educational event. So that was a great time. So again, Kev, really appreciate that. So thanks a million for that, brother. Yeah, of course, dude. All right. So, yeah, your journey's a little bit interesting because when you were on previously, it was really I got you on to speak about nutrition because at the time you you were you were doing a lot of writing for Rob Wolf's website, um, in terms of nutrition, and it was probably just around the time that I went to that uh, that Shiko uh, seminar with you that you were kind of just getting into powerlifting yourself and your kind of own sort of powerlifting career was starting to take off. So this is why I want to get you on was to talk about sort of um uh. Chico system because again the fact that it's it, all his material currently is in Russian it does wonder there's a few little English bits floating about there there is apparently is some book underground book that floats around but I haven't managed to track it down yet Max Aida had it on his laptop and his laptop got stolen out of his car so it was a disaster but uh, I suppose could you fill us in maybe on uh, Chico system so maybe like so the, so the whole podcast is just basically going to be you taking the floor here and kind of maybe laying out a basic framework of Shiko's system and then we can kind of dial down a little more into the nitty-gritty details. Yeah, so um, I think one of the biggest differences between him and some of the other, like especially more the Western powerlifting strength coaches and stuff, is how important he feels technique is for the three lifts. Now, it might seem a little weird because like the squat, the bench, and the deadlift, they're not like super skilled movements that require a, you know, a ton of skill to do well. However, he feels otherwise. And the Eastern Europeans have actually kind of discussed this within the strength sports since like the 50s and 60s, how neuromuscular coordination 
becomes the most important aspect to a lifter becoming stronger. So they even talk about how when you get sticking points within the lifts, that it's not necessarily due to weak muscles. Where here, especially like with a lot of American uh, strength coaches and programs, you get a sticking point within the lift, they try to narrow it down to a weak muscle group, and then you would hit that muscle group separately as like accessory work. However, they don't really think of it in the same manner. They believe that that's more due to neuromuscular coordination. You're going to work it within the competition lift itself. So the volume and the frequency tend to be a lot higher uh, than what you would see in most typical programs with the of, of the competitive of the competition lifts. While the uh, the volume of accessory lifts tends to be a little bit smaller. And one of the other like interesting aspects that I felt of the program when I first heard him talk was you very rarely go over 85% of one rep max. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the reason for that is it's just because of technique. Once you start getting over that 85% mark, you start seeing the, the bar path start to get altered. And if you're doing, say we're going to do some sets at 90% and we're going to do four sets of two, but all eight of those reps look different, you've trained eight different movement patterns. The goal is to be able to train one movement pattern consistently, which makes it more stable. So if we're constantly training in different positions, we're creating an unstable movement pattern that's going to be, it's going to fall apart more easily on the platform because it's already broken, if that makes sense. So when we do go over 85%, we tend to shorten the range of motion. We use some type of different um, training tool so that the bar path remains the same and consistent throughout all of training. So say we're going to hit 90% on the bench press, we might use a one board or we might use like a slingshot, which kind of aids in the press itself to allow the lifter to maintain that same uh, bar path. And like one of the crazy things when I first started doing this, I had a lifter. She was really strong, but her technique was really poor. So we went to a meet. She had only been working with me for about eight weeks. We went to a meet. And she ended up pulling like 35 pounds less than she had pulled previously. So I told her, we're going to, you know, lower your training max. Everything's going to look perfect. And she ended up not going over. It was roughly 70% of her one rep max. And we literally just drilled technique, drilled technique, drilled technique. She ended up putting 45 pounds on that deadlift in a five-month period. Uh, you know, even going surpass what she was doing before, just from clearing up the technique issues. How 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 much of a training age does she have, Kev? Uh, two years at the time, yeah, I believe. Sure. I think she's been with her for three now, so yeah, like two ish. Okay, okay. So just just a, a little few questions that popped into my head there. So he, he, there seems to be more emphasis on volume on the actual competition, this less on the assistance movements. Um, but just so you're talking about, they didn't go over 85% much because when you start to go over, it seems to be more variability in the technique from from um, one set to the next set. But then, how, how do you become more stable then at over 85%? Seemingly, as the sport is about your max effort. So, you can actually use certain, it's what she could call supplemental work. So, the competition lifts themselves are the squat, the bench, and the deadlift. And that makes up about 20% of the overall volume. And then 60% of the overall volume comes from supplemental exercises. So this is where the variations within the competition lift come into play. So, so just, 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 sorry, just, just for you go on, because just so, because if we don't address this now, I think there could be some confusion. So are you, is there, like, because I know in some classification systems, there's a difference between the competition, then there's assistance movements, and then there's supplementary movements. So, like, usually assistance movements look very like the competition movements, but have a slight variation where supplementary would be more, like, about training the muscle, but they might look like the movement. So what classification are you going with? Are you saying supplementary is an assistance movement, or can you just clarify yes. that? Yes, so it would be similar to an assistance movement. So okay, his okay. supplemental exercises would actually be, like you know, the, the squat. Variations of the competition Exactly. Okay. And then there's developmental work, which would be more concentrated on like local muscle groups. Right, right. So his classification is competition, supplemental, developmental, whereas like someone like Mike Tashir, he would be competition, assistant, supplemental. It's just wording, that's all. Exactly. It's just, yeah. It's right. It's just, yeah, it's just if, if we didn't give that context, I think people might have misinterpreted some of the things we were going to talk about. 
Yeah, yeah. And so if we take some of those supplemental exercises, so for example, if I do a deficit deadlift, which Chico recommends at 8 to 10 centimeters, at 70%, it's much harder than 70%. So there's ways that we can work within that, that 75% to 85% of one rep max within that range, and we can make the lifts more difficult for the lifter so that it feels heavier than what it really is. And also, if we're taking, you know, 80% for sets of three or four, by the time you're getting to that third or fourth rep, the amount of um, exertion the lifter has to put behind the weight makes it more difficult as well. So in terms of how you'd set up your – or how the training cycles are set up, is he a proponent of an accumulation intensification and sort of realization of peaking type system, or how does that look so – you know, say we're 12 to 16 weeks out from a meet, how does that uh, whole training um, cycle look? Yeah, so you're going to have some weeks that are going to have higher volumes than others. Um, the peaking block, it tends to be the same all the time. So it's called a, a competition cycle. It's always going to be four weeks. Uh, the lifter's going to test 17 to 22 days out. So on day one of that test week, they'll test the squat and the bench press. On day two, they'll do some type of bench press first, and then they'll test the deadlift, and then the taper begins. So you see a drastic drop in volume, but maintaining some levels of intensity to maintain the levels of strength that the lifters um, gained over the previous training block. Uh, what I've seen in my programs more recently was, so in the beginning, there would be some higher volume weeks and then some lower volume weeks, and it would kind of alternate in patterns depending on how far we were out from competition. But lately it's been more my first few days of a week are going to be the higher volume days. And then day four tends to be a lighter volume day. So you might see, so every lift is going to have a baseline. So my average number of lifts is about 750 uh, in a four week period. And I train four days per week. So if I take that 750, and I divide it by the number of days in a training block, so 16, my baseline of volume is about 47 lifts per day. So there's going to be a day or two that's going to be over that 47 that's going to stress the athlete. There's going to be a day or two that's right at that 47 lift that just kind of help maintain the strength qualities that have um, come about from previous training cycles. And there's going to be a day before, uh, a day that drops below that, that's more for recovery. And that tends to be the day four, which is the second deadlift day, um, which a lot of times it'll be about half the volume of the 47. So I might have like 20 lifts on a day four with very little developmental work afterwards. So, is, sorry, is the 750 your monthly volume? Is that... That's my monthly volume in a four-week block oh, okay, okay. on average. So, Kevin, what, what determines then a, a lifter's volume? So... And if we're talking about a novice from an intermediate to an advanced. So their training age is going gonna, is gonna to play a role in this, but mostly, so there's a Russian strength classification chart, which you can actually uh Oh, is that like the Master Google 1, on. Master 2, Master 3, and then like Master 2? Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so there's, uh, based upon gender, weight class, and total, there's all these uh, different recommendations that Boroshiko has. And you can actually get uh, a list of these classifications, and he breaks it out in greater detail on his site, which is shiko-program.ru, I believe. Um, so for me, where I'm still kind of an, a novice lifter, I've only been lifting for two years, I'm on the lower end of the overall volumes. But over time, what this whole setup is built to do is just – it's it's utilizing the overload principle. So as I grow as a lifter, my volume is going to grow with me. Mm. So once my total gets up into that candidate for master of sport or higher, my volume is going to grow with it. Um, so and sure and would, 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 would intensity also go up along with that over the course of time? The intensity always stays the same. So it's always 70%. Of one rep max plus or minus about two percent. Yeah, because I suppose um, if your if your if your lifts are if your one RM is going up, well then the intensity actually is going up. It, like you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of times too where um, I'll have people run the same block over again. Mm. So you know, not the same block, but the same like twelve to sixteen week cycle. I know what you mean. Uh, just because, yeah, just because one, 
like a, a lot of times with strength teams, there's still room for improvement in that neuromuscular coordination department. So you can run it again and get the and get the same results. Plus, with new maxes, if everything works, there's not really a need to change a lot. Yeah, yeah. Just go, going off that point on the neuromuscular coordination. So, like, because you know, you read a lot of literature, and they'll say the initial gains in strength for beginners usually neuromuscular, but then to get further gains, then we seem to, it seems that like hypertrophy is probably their biggest bank of book, like to actually make a bigger muscle, and then. Because a bigger muscle now is, and this is the key word. Because I remember having this discussion with James Smith, and, and like it took it took him ages to like to like understand more. Because I said a bigger muscle has more potential to create more force, and he thought I was saying a bigger muscle will create more force. Like no, no, no. I said it has more potential if it gets innervated by the nervous system, and he's like, yeah, potential is the key word there. But like, yeah, and then just going off that too, I've been studying a lot of skill acquisition lately through my masters, and you were just kind of touching on that. You know, like some people attack a weak muscle group. And really, could be just you know more of a neurological thing in terms of intermuscular intra and intermuscular coordination. But uh, one very interesting point that came from John Goodwin, who's one of the head lecturers on the on the biomechanics module I'm doing and in the whole sort of master's course, was he was talking about skill act, and he was saying that if you actually strength, if you actually do strengthen a, a muscle that could be causing you not being able to execute a skill because you're not strong enough to get into that position by bringing up that like muscle group and then integrating into a new muscle coordination or into a skill or movement that has to be executed, you now have, um, you, you now have more, what's the word he used? Affordances. You've, you've now opened up more affordances, meaning that a previous skill you couldn't execute because it was a lack of a physical capacity can now be executed because now you have the physical capacity to execute that skill. So basically they're always asking the question, is it a skill issue or is it a capacity issue? So in terms of, 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 of a, of a powerlifter, is it strength or is it skill? So he would say that if there is actually a strength issue, that could be why you can't execute the skill. And if we bring up that strength, then you have access to that skill now. So just an interesting point on that. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, when you discuss something like that, so say like, you know, you have somebody that's squatting and the chest is caving forward on the way up. So in a lot of cases, people diagnose that as having weak quads. However, sitting on the leg leg press or, or doing leg extensions or whatever it is um, to strengthen the quads isn't necessarily going to correlate into a stronger squat. So, but if we learn how to use the quads within the squat, we do appropriate mm, volume mm. with the right intensity. So for example, I use a lot of like pin squats for this. So they'll go down to depth. They'll put the bar on the pins. They'll pause briefly and then they'll stand straight up. So they start to learn how to utilize the quads within the, the movement itself. So it's kind of doing both, I believe. Yeah. And like, if you think of like the neural adaptation of strength, um, you know, it's the ability to activate and coordinate a chain of muscles involved. So just having one weak muscle group and strengthening that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be stronger when it's part of the chain. Yeah. Well, so account. like, yeah, now John did say you need to integrate that in then to the, the coordination of the intra muscle coordination. But it's just, I, you know, I've heard that, like, so if you're talking about, like, world world-class lifters, like, like uh, they're kind of saying, like, the limiting factor is, like, like they're so strong that, like, trying to get gain more from a neuromuscular aspect, like, they might be better off going up. That's why a lot of them go up the next weight class because the only way to keep getting stronger is to actually get bigger and then innervate that new muscle with, with the neurological system. Like then integrate that new muscle. So it's just interesting to hear that that aspect too. But so far... Yeah, and for, oh, and for a more advanced lifter like that too, um, they're going to be doing less supplemental work and their work would be primarily on the competition lifts themselves. Yeah, yeah. So, within, within, you know, within, within this model, like within Chico's model. Yeah, exactly. It'll be more competition list. So what the goal of the supplemental exercises are, it's to give the athlete a problem to solve. Mm. So to develop that, that uh, neuromuscular coordination, you give them a problem and then they need to constantly solve it. So we might do like a pause on the halfway down, a pause on the halfway up, regular pause squats, squats with chains. And there's a recovery component to all of this too, but what you're trying to do is develop and master a skill level and where I've only been lifting for two years, I'm in that process now where a lot of it, 60% of my lifts are that. But he has somebody who just competed in IPF World a few months ago who had a similar breakdown as I did. So it sounds very much like he's applying dynamic systems theory and, like, you know, the degrees of freedom and, like, more variability because if you've more variability, you've more up, you're more adaptable then within the competition environment because you've exposed the body to more movement options. 
Exactly. And so, like in a lot of cases too, you need to, you need to fail a few times in order for a skill to kind of stick and become uh, mastered by an athlete. It's like that in, in any sport for any skill. Okay. So, so far, right. We just to give a summary of where we are so far within this model, there seems to be more emphasis on the competition movements, uh, less on, uh, sort of the developmental, um, summary then compared to more Western models, but there, there is quite a lot of volume that goes to what, what we would term assistance moves, what he terms submerge, which look like the competition movements, but have variations involved. Um, and then, uh, from a, Cycle standpoint, so if we want to call it a meso cycle standpoint, well, no, let's call it a macro, we'll call it macro, so if we're going from the beginning of a train cycle to a meet, he, uh, he likes to prescribe monthly volumes with each meso cycle within that macro cycle. And then the monthly volumes are determined by the training age and the gender and like where your total is currently at. Is, is that a good summary so far? That's a good summary. So then if, uh, just, just taking that, that sort of training cycle from, let's say, uh, day one all the way to a meet, what would that, I know you've, you've gone a little bit, what would that journey look like from block to block? So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming like if we had 12 weeks, would it be like three, four-week blocks or 16 weeks, four, four-week blocks or something along that line? Like, and is it a volume intensity peaking block? Or as you said, is it is it a case of it's just going volume block, intensity block, volume block, intensity block, and then boom, the four weeks out, you have that peaking block you spoke of. Yeah, so it's not necessarily where it'll be all volume, all intensity. So you kind of see them sprinkled throughout. So my day one and day three, I'll squat and bench on those two days. My day two and day four, I'll deadlift and bench on those two days. And one day tends to be more like higher volume stuff. Okay. And then the other day tends to be where we'll do the competition lift at higher intensities. Okay. So there's not really like one singular focus on volume and one singular focus on intensity in a block. It's kind of um, sprinkled throughout the macro cycle throughout it the whole time. It's, it's more done on a on a macro cycle basis week to week. On a, on yeah, a, exactly. on a micro on a micro sorry, micro cycle. I mean micro cycle. Yeah, week to week. And we'll, what I do with a lot of my athletes is I'll analyze their lifts, and there'll be say one thing in each lift that I really want to improve, and then I'll put the supplemental work in specifically for that issue, and then we'll reassess. So 60% of the lift, of the volume of lifts will go towards fixing just one issue that I see being the most glaring issue of each lift within a four-week block. And then the other 20% of the lifts will still be those competition lifts, typically done between like 80 and 90%. Sorry, just just give me that breakdown there again of the, of the ratio of the supplemental competition lifts. Is that? So supplemental lifts tend to make up about 60% of the total volume. Okay. And then the competition lifts make up about 20%. With the rest of the volume coming from development work. Okay, so we got 60, 20, 20 there. Just with, with the with the exercise variation in the supplementary um, exercises, is that targeted to a weakness, or 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 is it variation for variation's sake, or will you will you target that that variation? It's targeted towards a weakness. So uh, he'll analyze the lift, and this is what I do with my lifters as well, all the way through, and I'll. Like, for example, for the squat, the un- we'll watch the unrack, we'll watch the walkout, we'll watch the eccentric, we'll watch the transition from the eccentric to the concentric, the concentric, and then the walkout. And then I'll choose whichever area I see tends to be the most glaring weakness. So maybe on the way up, their knees are caving in and their chest is falling forward. So we know during that transition period, uh, that their technique's breaking down and it'll probably solve some problems. So we might do some pause squats, some pin squats, some pauses on the halfway up. So right, right in that position. Like mm. tempo tends to fix a lot of uh, technical errors. So just pausing in various positions kind of slows them down a little bit. Um, and we'll just work on fixing that one error, and then I'll reanalyze. So you still have those twenty percent of those lifts being competition lifts. So I'll see their squats and how they're improving based upon the supplemental exercises that we're using. And if it's fixed up, there might be another issue that we might address in a future block, or maybe it's getting better, but it's not where it should be. So we'll just kind of continue on how we're doing it. But I like to target the supplemental exercises based upon the weaknesses that I analyze within that list. 
just going on. Uh, so you were saying 70, 80% is mostly where the, the, the main movements are for, for most of the training. Do, do, is it is it a case of it's more like, you know, between 70, 75, and then as you get closer to your competition, 75, 80, and 80, 85, is, is that, does it, does it sort of go in a linear progression like that towards competition? Yeah, you'll start seeing that. So as my competition draws more near, we'll work a lot at 85% uh, throughout the block. You know, there might be in a four-week block, maybe you hit 85% once or twice. You'll hit 80% a few times. Yes. Um, more so on the squat and the bench than on the deadlift, just for recovery sake. Um, and then as the meat draws near, typically my volume will start to taper before my test. And during the volume taper, you'll see a spike in intensity. So I might take some singles at 90% on all three of those lifts on different days. Uh, then there'll be like day three, day four, be pretty light intensity, light volume. And then I'll test the following week. So there will be some ramping up uh, towards the heavier weights. And how much exposure would you get then to lifts over 90% before competition? Because, again, just thinking about, like, the principle of specificity and kind of getting used to, you know, basically coordinating that skill of the lifts that are over 90 and closer to 90 and then closer to, obviously, 100 or plus percent because you're getting closer to competition. Because, obviously, then, like, I mean, the skill and the coordination is a hell of a lot different when you're getting up to those intensities compared to those lower intensities. So there's been blocks where I haven't even touched 90%. Uh, for the competition list. So I might pull 90% off blocks or something. Yeah. Um, and literally, I think there's only been before two meets that I've actually uh, taken 90% for singles. However, 85% for doubles, that second rep at 85% is going to be more difficult than a single at 90% in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. well, um, it depends on the movement. It depends on the movement too sometimes. Because the other way, like 85% on the bench can be rated to 85% in the dead of the squat like it's on the lifter and their mechanics too. Right. So if you know that their technique's going to fall apart at ninety percent, you know you might choose to work at that eighty-five percent for doubles or triples instead of pushing the intensity up just to keep it the same. It, you know, the whole exertion load thing, like doubles and triples at eighty-five percent, is going to be more difficult than singles at ninety percent for the lifter. Okay, so let's, uh, for the listeners, right, let's, um, well, actually, before I ask, I was going to ask you to do, like, almost a case study. We'll do that in a second. So, like, we'll give it, like, a hypothetical lift or say, like, this is myself going to. But before I do that, just walk us through the, the typical micro cycle setup, so the weekly cycle. So, your basic set so far that you have a, a squat bench day and you have a deadlift bench day. And the second deadlift bench day seems to be the one where that's the lower volume. Um, so, Ed, as well, you're taking this monthly volume of lifts, you're dividing that by four for four weeks, and then I'm assuming then you're dividing that again by the, the amount of days you're, you're lifting within your weekly or microcycle. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. All right, um, so do you want to maybe just break down a, a typical microcycle then? Yeah, so if my average tends to be around 50, 50 lifts per day, um, I might see a squat to start day one, it might be pretty light. <laughs> um, one of the big things on the Chico program is the double squat sessions or bench sessions or deadlift sessions, but it's not always the case. So it's not always two squats. So like, for example, yesterday I had squat with chains. Uh, everything from 50% and higher is recorded in my program. So I did 50% for four. 60% for four, and then 70% for a five-by-four. So that's 28 total lifts. And then on the bench, I'm going to actually pull it up here so I can even read the whole week. And, Kev, um, and Kev, then for the bench. Kev, just, yep. for, just for you to go on there too, like is there a certain threshold where he will start counting sets as actual work sets? So like, you know, is it like in case anything below 60 doesn't count or – and obviously, it depends on how many reps he executes that percentage, but is there a certain threshold that he counts as actual work sets? Everything from 50% higher is recorded. Okay. So that's actually included into the average intensity. So when I said 70% is the average intensity plus or minus 2%, that's including all the reps taken at 50% and higher. And I'm, I'm going I'm to so, ask a very dumb question here, but like, uh, that's on the assumption that you're not like doing a single at 50%. Correct. No. So... Typically, if you're working at 80% or 85%, there'll be three warm-ups that are going to be listed. So that's 50, 60, 70. Yeah. Um, if you're working at 90% or higher, like a test day, 
uh, there's going to be four warm-ups that are going to be listed. So you might see, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, 85, and then you're into the 90. Um, but no, you're never going to take like singles at 50%. Uh, and then after squat with chains, I hit the bench press. Uh, so I had a, it's what he calls a short, intense pyramid on the bench press. So after the 50, 60, and 70% reps, I hit 80% for two by two, 85% for a three by one, and then I came back to 80% for a two by two. So my total number of competition lifts on my day one was 51. So that would be an average day uh, for me. And then there was developmental work. So I had pecs uh, for five sets of eight, front delts, five sets of six, lying triceps, four sets of eight. Mm-hmm. And that made up day one. My day two is a little bit under baseline, uh, but it's right there also. Bench press with bands. So we get up to 65% for four sets of four. Uh, with the 50 and 60% reps added in, it's 24 total reps. Why with bands? Why, why, why with bands? Just, is there a reason, particular reason for bands for you? So it's, it's more for recovery. So with a band deload on the pecs and the front delta, where we're benching three to four times a week, it just doesn't beat up the lifter in the same manner. Okay. So on my chest, it's pretty light. And then obviously it gets a little heavier as I, I lock it out. But, um, you know, even just throwing like little subtle changes like that onto the movement, it allows certain motor units to kind yeah, of recover yeah, yeah. so yeah, that yeah. the next day I come back to bench, it'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So uh, you had that. So I had bench bands and then I followed up with uh, some deadlift supplemental exercise. This is called the full deadlift plus deadlift below the knees. So you lock out the deadlift and then you concentrate it's a slow controlled eccentric and you bring it as low as you can to the ground without touching the ground and then you bring it back up so i worked up to a 70 so 70 percent nope 75 percent for four sets of a one plus two so that means the 75 percent of the bar i lock out the first deadlift and then for two reps i bring it down as low to the ground as possible without touching the ground and then bring it back up um, it tends to help fix starting position and really mm-hmm. strengthens the back muscles it's pretty rough yeah, and then it's, my it's, it's um, horrendous. Oh yeah, the grip too. Um, and then my developmental work is standing triceps for five sets of six and just abs for three sets of eight. So that's a pretty light overall volume day. It's because my day three is my over baseline day. So it, just in terms of the setup, would this be Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, or is it, how does it look through the week? Ideally, you'd want to go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, um, sometimes because of Life, it you, doesn't really you, work that you way. Go, you go, you got I go Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday, Friday. Thursday, Friday. Okay. Yeah. So then my day three, I have a squat pyramid. So 50% for five, 60% for five. My top sets are at 70%. And this is unique because the reps, the weight stays the same, but the reps change. So the first set I take for four reps, second set for seven, then three reps, then eight reps, then two reps, then nine reps then five reps. So there's two different kinds of pyramids that he uses. So this is called the ragged method. So you can, you notice how it goes from lower rep sets to higher rep sets and alternates back and forth. So even though this is a higher stress day, this is the easier of the pyramid methods that Chico uses because you kind of get a break from the higher rep set with the lower rep set being between. What you'll see sometimes also is a higher stress pyramid where it'll, it'll just, tear up so you'll go three reps five reps seven reps nine reps eight reps six reps four reps uh and that tends to be a little bit more stressful because you don't have the same break in between and then after my squat pyramid i have a bench press with the slingshot so this i work up to doubles at 90 percent. so i i mentioned this earlier so sometimes when we do work at the higher weights we'll use certain tools to make sure that technique stays the same so the slingshot gives you a little a little pop off the chest, so it becomes a little bit easier. It also doesn't beat up your pecs and front delts the same way as if I was just using straight weight without the slingshot. So my total lift, and then there's a bunch of developmental work, so pecs 5 by 8 medial delts 5 by 8 and then hyperextensions 4 by 8 So my total lift that day is 66, so that's well above my baseline. So that's my, my more stressful day of the week. And then on day 4, I don't have a competition style bench press. I have incline uh, bench press for five sets of five. And then I go to deadlift with bands 
uh, where I work up to 65% for five sets of four. And then I have some developmental work and also this is actually a newer exercise that's been thrown in some slow speed, straight knees, uh, deadlift with snatch grip with about 25% of my one rep max, uh, for four sets of five. It's more of a, uh, a back builder for the deadlift. So, so my total lifts on day four yeah. are only 28. So it's well below baseline. So the, uh, the, there doesn't actually seem to be a lot of developmental volume for the lower body in comparison to the upper body, obviously because so the lower body accrues much more damage because it can produce more force and it's bigger muscle groups in terms of recovery. But that, that's interesting. And then that's very interesting that, uh, you know, keeping the weight static and then fluctuating the, the reps set to set. That's, that is interesting. And just in terms of your, your overall training cycle right now, where, where are you in your training? Are you, are you far out from competition? Is this, is this more like a, an early train. It's, it sounds more like an accumulation to some type of block of training. Yeah, so I just competed in August, so it's been pretty light for this four-week block uh, and a little bit in the one before. It'll start to pick up a little bit. Um, I think when I added everything together, because coaching at Rod Nationals, I had a really light week before it, but there was about, I think, 780 lifts in this block or something. So it's still a pretty typical volume block, but the overall, um, like intensity of it is, it's pretty low. So just one thing I want to ask you, you said you, you touched on 90% there, I think the one year I was on the bench with. Just like, so do, 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 in the, in Chico system, does he kind of make sure that you do, you don't ever stray too far away from like 90%? Like even let's say if it was like your first block in training, he might sneak a little, you know, in one of the sessions, here's here's just a little bit a lift of higher intensity, just to make sure that we're still letting the system um, feel that you know feel that intensity, or you know we're, we're still making sure that the system gets a bit of that stimulus, so it's not getting too far away from 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 high intensity movements. Yeah, so like even in this block, I've hit eighty percent for doubles on the squat quite a few times, eighty five percent for doubles quite yeah. a few times, and there'll be times too because you can actually take that eighty percent for, you know, four or five doubles on that squat. And if you make it the second squat movement of a day, it feels heavier than 80%. So in a lot of cases, I might have like some type of supplemental ex squat exercise first. So it might be like squat with two second pause on the halfway down for, you know, say 20 reps. Then I'll hit a bench press and then I might hit that squat at 80% for four sets of two. So now I'm fatigued and taking that 80%. It's a way to make 80% feel a little bit heavier while keeping technique uh, right where you want it. Just going back there to your to the week you just described there, did did you actually train any of your competition movements there? Like actually how you do the competition? Uh, the squat with the pyramid, uh, it's a it's the competition squat. But the deadlift so and bench no you variation did, to it. The deadlift and the bench you were all other variations to your comp competition movements. Uh, the bench on my day one. Oh, so it was on competition of this okay. week was competition. All right. Um, and then my deadlift, so deadlift with bands and then the full deadlift was deadlift below the knees. It's rare that I actually do a competition deadlift in training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a, as the meet gets closer, I'll see more of that added in, but it's still a lot less than you would imagine. Uh, You're a sumo deadlifter, you yeah. would imagine. You're sumo? Or you no, 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 conventional. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, so I think a good place maybe to, to wrap up would be uh, a little case study, and then at the end I'll ask a little quick fire round questions, you know. So, but so right, let's say Kev, I I go into you, I'm a fairly novice lift, like you know, let's just say it's me, like I, so like I I know how to squat bench deadlift. Well, do you know what I mean? I, I obviously you'll look at my technique and pull it apart, but I I know what squat bench deadlift is, and I've I've done them and I'm, I'm proficient-ish at them. But let's say I go to you and I wanna I wanna do a meet in 16 weeks. Like, how does that whole process look? So, like, is is there a – do you do any movement screening? Do you do any nutrition consults in that? Do, like, what what, what does the – do you just get me on and say, right, let's have a look at your technique? And then, like, how do you determine where to start in terms of volumes and exercises? And do you, like, obviously, you look at my mechanics and say you're weak here, weak there? Like, like let's just bring us through that whole thing. So, I walk in, Kev, I've been meeting meet in 12 or 16 weeks there. 16 weeks and say, and then you've got to get me ready. Here's the money. All right. So typically in, the, in this scenario, a novice lifter, um, I'm going to look at videos of their lifts. I'm going to look at what they've done for at least the last four weeks of training so that I have some type of baseline of the volumes that they're capable of handling. 
However, where they are a novice lifter, I feel they're going to benefit the most from just technique work anyways. So the volume is going to be relatively starter volume. It's probably going to be between 600 and 700 lifts um, in the month, and it'll be something that kind of builds up over time probably after that first meet because uh, we're going to test and taper four weeks out, three weeks out. Um, but for assessments, I don't really use assessments the same way that, that I used to. I kind of just watch them lift and take it from there. So in a lot of cases where, you know, they're not hitting depth on a squat, we'll just add in exercises within the lift, like pause squats, and they'll just kind of let the weight sink them down. So it's just kind of like weighted and range of motion exercises just to teach them how to lift within the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but it's going to be mostly just like technique stuff and the volume is going to be pretty consistent. Like your day one to day three are going to be at baseline or a little bit above baseline. Day four will be a recovery day. We'll just kind of work on things and the meat will just be a starting point. So it kind of gives you something to, you know, work to beat later on. Just with with a novice, would would they spend more time just actually doing their competition lifts and not so much variation because they're such a novice, like they don't need that variation in their program and they actually need to practice the skill of their competition lifts. Like they need to maybe stabilize it a lot more. So I would actually do the exact same thing. So they'd still have 60% and 20%. So 20% of the time they'll practice the competition lifts. Okay, okay, yeah, that's and even then, like the supplemental work at that point is just like, it's to give them an experience and a feeling underneath the barbell doing the lift. So like where we have pauses in random spots within the squat, so like a pause on the halfway down, you'll notice that most people, they just don't know where to pause. Like they don't have any realization of where they are in space. But as they become more developed within the movements, they kind of are able to pause in the same spot consistently. And it's just to give them that that experience and that skill acquisition. And it, it does tend to help quite a bit because it slows them down a little bit too. Um, but yeah, I feel that even with the supplemental work, because it is the competition lift with just a really subtle change to it, uh, helps build that technique a little bit faster. Okay. And so, right, you, you watch their mechanics. Uh, you've given the, they're still on the 60 20 20. Um, would you go with, like, say, would you still go with a four? Is is it always a four-day setup on, on his programs, no matter what classification the lifter is, or does he ever go to five or six days with, like, the, the really um, advanced lifters? And, say, with a novice, would, would they maybe just start off with three days a week? Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's even – so novice lifters, three days a week, uh, you won't see any, like, double squat or deadlift sessions or anything like that. It'll just be, you know, you might squat and bench, but you're not going to – come back to squats because they're going to be too fatigued to maintain technique. And then as they age through, yeah, you'll see four days come in. Um, in some cases with a novice lifter, if they can do four days, I tend to like to do the four days because you have less acute volume. So technique just can get, I mean, uh, volume can get stretched out through the week and it keeps yeah, technique a little yeah, bit more yeah, fresh. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even, even then, like I have some more advanced lifters that because of work and school and life, they can only train three or four days a week, so they're not capable of doing more days. And, you know, their acute stress is going to be a, a hell of a lot higher. Um, but overall, it tends, to be, it tends to be the same, and it still works fine. Like, nobody's getting paid for powerlifting, so it becomes, you know, you got to fit it in where you can fit it in. But for him, uh, his more advanced lifters will lift five to six days per week, and some of them will even have an AM session and a PM session. So they can get upwards of nine training sessions in in a seven day period. Okay, and then it's always total body is in like you're, you're never going to have just an all squat day, an all bench day, an all deadlift day. You're always going to have a component of each of the three lifts on every on every day. Or like if it, if it was three days a week, you might have a component of all three lifts every day. If it's a four day, you probably have like you know you have, well, you said you you go squat and bench uh, two days and deadlift bench on the other two days. So like there's, there's always going to be, uh, work done on like at least two of the lifts, if not maybe three, depending on the, the weekly setup. Yep. Correct. And like overall volume for the number of lifts, uh, 50% of it tends to be the bench press. And then you'll see roughly 25% for the squat, 25% for the deadlift. Nice. So you're kind of getting yeah. half of it, upper body, half of it, lower body. When you think of it that way. Okay. Very um, good. Very good, sir. 
just a question there then. In terms of uh, the reps and the percentages of 1RM, does he utilize something similar to like a Prolipins chart or like how does he go about prescribing certain reps to certain percentages? So most of the time it follows Prolipins chart. Okay. But sometimes it doesn't. So like the squat pyramid where I'm doing sets of seven, eight, nine at 70%, it's higher than Prolipins chart would recommend. Um, and then there are times too where if you're having a double squat session, you might get the higher end of the optimal reps or it might be a little more of the optimal reps at 80% in that range or something total for the day, but each one falls within that same um, spectrum. So like Prolipins chart is actually pretty good because with technique stuff, it's, it works, and it works well. So it's, I think it applies to the majority of the second reps that are written in my program, and I use it a lot You uh, mean, you with mean the programs that I write. You mean Shaco prescribes something going outside of the parameters of Philippe Shark that's blasphemy? Yeah, seriously. Uh, no, uh, right, that's actually brilliant. I mean, that's kind of, that was kind of, a, not, not everything we, we could, I just, there's plenty more we could talk about, but again, uh, I want to be respectful of your time, and uh, I just I, I want to go eat as well. But there's a few uh, there's a few other questions, a few other questions that I just want to wrap up on. What would you say have been the biggest mistakes and lessons you've learned since you started uh, incorporating um, Shiko's program into your own training and into training of your clients? So the number one biggest lesson I think is a lot of Western programs you use ninety percent numbers too often mm. so we chase these intensities and in, in the and the volumes at these intensities too much without taking a step back and being truly honest and looking at technique so that i think would be the number one biggest thing and then just like the pure layout of the programs like i basically mimic what he does so having those like double squat sessions, which is it's unique. I don't think of, I don't know of anybody else doing something like that, uh, where you can take the volume, you know, 40 lifts, say as a normal squat day, and we can take 20 bench and then do the other 20 and break it up that way. It just like to me from playing sports, it, it sounds more like a practice. Like you might have some type of skill you're working on as a team. And then you scrimmage at the end to kind of put it all together. So like, I kind of structure my programs in the in the same manner, and I think those two things are the biggest takeaways that I've gotten from uh, utilizing it. In terms of resources with uh, Chico, like what are so? Let's say I'm someone listening to this podcast now because it's the greatest podcast ever, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, like and I'm like, I want to learn more about Chico and his system. Is there any good English translated material out there that you've come across, or is there anything that you yourself have been able to study in, or is it purely just from just having him writing your programs? Uh, purely from having him write my programs and just like our emails back and forth. Like he's been very open to answering questions and stuff. Um, he does have a website, the ChicoProgram.ru that there's like a forum on there and there's a lot of questions that have been answered. There's a lot of good info uh, that can be derived from there. There's articles and stuff. There's a few of them. There's not a ton, uh, but that are posted on that, on that website as well. That kind of breaks a lot of the stuff down that we were talking about. And he, he does have a book coming out in English. You were saying, you were saying that because yeah, I actually heard this too, that Mike Isitel apparently was translating his book to English, but I heard that a long time ago. So I don't know if it, Yeah. It, so, it's been a while and there's been like a huge delay in it, but I think the plans are to get that back up and running and then hopefully get uh, that whole thing translated in English at some point. Yeah, because uh, I'm very good friends with Yossi Johnson of Ultimate Alley Concepts, and I actually told him to contact Chico because I'm sure he'd love love a publisher to translate all his books. And he's, he's translated all the Bonner Truck books and uh, Isherman stuff, so he's well used to having to translate books from another language. Yeah, I mean, that, that'd be great. Uh, you know, there's just nothing in English. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, I'll, I'll say to him again. He said he sent him an email and he didn't get back. But maybe I'll, I'll maybe, if, maybe if you say to him. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you, you also would love to facilitate that. So we would. Uh, I was going to say to you. Oh yes, just before we wrap up, I'm interested here about the big move that um, 
um, yeah. that, that TPS makes or Total Performance Sports make? Because when I was over uh, at Total Performance Sports back in 2015, you were in your old facility, and then uh, you were talking at that time that you had to move because the building or something, the lease was up or whatever. So to talk about, uh, you know, talk about finding a new place and then the big move. Uh, you were saying to me before we went online, it was a big pain in the ass. How did that, how did that whole process go? So you've been to the old one. It was 30,000 square feet. It was on the fourth floor. Um, there's a casino that's coming in that bought the building to turn it into a hotel. So we uh, kind of get kicked out and we, we had to find a place really quick. Uh, and like, I mean, we, we were getting desperate. Like we just couldn't find a building. Finally, the building that we're in now, somebody else had signed a lease at first, but it ended up falling through and then coming back to us and we were able to get it. But like, we're a small business, man. We literally had to move everything out of there. So we had to carry all that shit down four flights of stairs, pack it in a truck and drive it to the next town all over to bring into the gym. It was, it was a hell of a two weeks. Oh, I'd say it was a torture because the amount of gear you guys had up in that fucking fourth floor was just ridiculous in terms of just machines and then fucking monoliths and squat racks and just, oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah. But, uh, and we literally so, had to cut so, the monolith how, and then re-weld them. <laughs> no. What a fucking nightmare. Oh, yeah. You'll never, you'll never forget that, I'd say. And come here, uh, what, how big is the new facility now? So we downgraded to 10,000 square feet. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're back to like the old strength route. So there's no more machines or anything like we had on the third floor uh, in the old building. It's, as Murph put it, it's all buff, no fluff. And membership-wise, did you lose many members, or did it initially go down and it's come back up? And yeah, so we actually lost way more than we had anticipated. We lost about a little over fifty percent of our members. Wow! And it took a little while to get back up, but now now it's back up and and doing well. I think it took a while for people to realize that we were there. So now we have subway access that's only a block away. So we get a lot of people, like college students that are in the city of Boston, to to come over, and it's. It's been picking up quite a bit. Is it far away from where the old facility used to be? Uh, it's maybe two miles. It's not that far. Not that but far we had a lot of people that were traveling from the other side to get to the old building. So they were, you know, now they're 30, 40 minutes away instead of the 10, 15 that they were to Everett before. Yeah, yeah, I get you, I get you. All right, Kev, just wrapping up here. Uh, love to hear your top advice to all of the listeners, anything at all, life advice can be anything. What would what would your top advice be to all the listeners? Oh man, if if I had good advice, man, I, God knows where I'd be. Um, but I think my top advice is like this was. I'm pretty sure I'm restating something that Mike Boyle actually said. Like mimic those that have done it well for a long time. Try to understand why they do things the way that they do, and then once you understand it, you can kind of make things your own. I think no matter what, in any field that you're in, I think that's just, I think, outstanding advice. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, what uh, what books or books are you reading right now? Oh, God. If I only had time time to read. I, I literally just read The Wim Hof Method. Oh, nice. Uh, that, always, that always interested me. Uh, trying the whole cold shower thing. We'll see how that goes. He's great, Wim. Um yeah, he's just he he's an exciting uh, like figure, I think. Um, but uh, other than that, uh, you know, I'm just uh, coaching and lifting. Yeah, just lifting and coaching and trying to, you know, find time to even like. I like some of uh, Juggernaut's podcasts. I've been trying to like listen to, but like I get two done in like a the three jugglers. month period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. Trying to find the free time to get more. Uh, stuff and then I suppose, right, well, then I'll ask it anyway, but is there any really good resources you've come across over the last few years since the last time you were on the podcast? Anything at all in terms of, and it can be anything, it doesn't have to be just limited to uh, the the physical preparation profession or powerlift or strength training or nutrition. It can be anything, it can be personal development. Is there anything now you've done and you've come across in terms of, again, it could be a book, a course, a podcast, an audio program, anything at all that, that really kind of uh, you, you really found benefited you? Yeah, so I've kind of been uh, digging through a lot of like pain science stuff. Uh, oh, nice. I find it complete, completely fascinating. 
So there's a blog. The guy's name is Greg Lehman. L E M A N. Yeah, yeah. He's got some. He's got some great stuff. Um, and what's cool is there's a lot of links to the research articles in there. It's very unbiased and like it's a fun little rabbit hole to kind of get uh, kind of get stuck. Oh, yeah, I'm t- thinking of getting him on the podcast at some stage. So it's good to uh, good to hear him being mentioned. You know, because uh, I'm well aware of who he is and he's presented at, like the San Diego Pain Summit and you know, so I, I've seen him present a few of those and I've heard a few people mention his name before in terms of the Pain Summit. So that's that's good. Kev, last yeah, one. Last, last question. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just saying, like, uh, you know, his stuff that I literally, like, started to read has really, like, opened my eyes to the way how I deal um, with, like, assessments and clients and pain and stuff like that. It, it, I found it to be extremely helpful. Yeah, great stuff. So, last question for you. I, uh, I'm going to fly over to Boston. And I'm saying, Kev, you want to go to dinner with me? And then you go, absolutely, of course, you're a legend. And, uh, and and you're and you're like and it's on you. I'm like, okay, tell me. Uh, but for uh, for um, this dinner too, I'm gonna bring my superpowers, and my superpowers allow me to bring back people from the dead. So uh, I say to you, Kev, listen, we're going for dinner, and I'm booking five extra spots at the table. You can bring whoever you want to dinner, dead or alive. Who you bringing and why? Oh man, anybody to the table. Anybody to the table. Obviously, your daughter has to come too. Well, yeah, of course. Um, so I actually will keep it strength related. Uh, Fred Hatfield, I got to meet three or four years ago now. Who uh, he did a free seminar oh, yeah. at um, at TPS, and we got to go out and like that dude loved to drink and like hang out like. I, I think I'd, I'd bring him with me and bring up some of the stuff that I've learned from Chico uh, over the last two and a half years. And get just, 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 just for you move on there, I want, I want to tell you this little thing. So the, literally the two days before he passed away, right, we had a podcast lined up. The day, the day actually he died was uh, – yeah, it was two days before he passed away. We, we had a podcast lined up. Like, so my, my last interaction with him was like – setting the date and he and he sent me back this big thumbs up say yeah we're locked in that date and then two days later he passed it really took me That's back crazy yeah it really took me back it's like holy shit i was just i was only just like talking to fred hatfield so, right. fred, so fred hatfield is one who are our, our, our other four guests uh man teddy roosevelt nice just just because uh i don't know man come on come two on more. Two, three more. two more. No, three more. Three more. Your, your daughter is three. three more. All right, all right. So she doesn't count. Let's see. Um, uh, Anyone at all? I think John. Let's throw John Jones in there. I think he'd be fun to hang out with. Cool. Rob Gronkowski. Cool. And we need one more. And Tom Brady, of course. Ah, I'm nice. from Boston, Massachusetts. We love Tom Brady. All right. That'd be interesting. Inter- Tom Brady and Roosevelt at the table. That'd be interesting. Exactly. It's a great dinner. All right. Kev, listen, that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, obviously, stay online there when I wrap this up. So, guys, what a great uh, episode with uh, Kevin Kahn. Um, oh, but, sorry, Kevin, if, if people were want to, to, to consult with you about powerlifting or maybe even hire you for your services, do you offer any online training? And even people who are in the Boston area listen to this, maybe just uh, where can they find out more about your websites and, and uh, your social media? Yeah, so on Instagram, I am KWCAN, so K-W-C-A-N-N. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. And then our website at Total Performance Sports is Total Performance Sports, with an S on the end, dot com. Great stuff. Kev, listen, this was a great, uh, just over an hour or so um, of information, um, so I really appreciate it. Again, so stay in line down and wrap this up. So, guys, what a fantastic episode here with Kevin Kahn, all things Boris Shaco um, really got some great details in around Shaco's system throughout the hour or so that we spoke there. So absolutely top class information. So for now, guys, uh, take care. I'll talk to you all soon and stay strong. Mm-hmm.